0: Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation.
1: Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for September 10th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we talk National Honey Month with Jeremy Bemis of Bemis Honeybee Farm. We get the latest on cotton from agronomist Bill Robertson, and we hear about the challenges facing agritourism businesses in Arkansas during the COVID-19 pandemic. First, Ken Moore talks to Jeremy Bemis, who, along with his wife Emily, owns Bemis Honey Bee Farm south of Little Rock. Jeremy says the COVID-19 pandemic forced them to cancel two of their major annual events, Bee Day and the Honey Festival, as well as monthly classes on backyard beehives. But they're utilizing virtual technology to educate the public about beekeeping and hope to host their events again next year.
0: September, among other things, is National Honey Month. And it's a time to celebrate and promote the importance of uh, honey, the uh, nutritional value of locally produced honey, and uh, the beekeepers uh, that produce honey for all the rest of us. And one of those is Jeremy Bemis. Jeremy and his family have the Bemis Bee Farm uh, south of Little Rock, and uh, it's grown in popularity. And in a normal year, the Bemises would invite the public and have uh, several hundred people come out and attend their honey days and bee day outreach programs. They have one in the spring and usually one in the fall uh, about this time of year. And, Jeremy, thanks for visiting with us today to kind of, bring our listeners on Arkansas AgCast up to date on, on how your family has adapted to and how you're dealing with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and what all that has done uh, for you guys, how it's affected your operation there. So if you will, Jeremy, just kind of tell us what's been happening at the bee farm here in 2020.
2: Uh, well, It's been a weird year, uh, not just because of the virus, just the weather this year has been kind of weird. Uh I think we I think we're what, six, eight inches above rainfall in August for Arkansas. Uh, so that's that's a whole different set of things than we're used to dealing with. Uh the virus we, we do our honey festival. We actually had over fifteen hundred people at our last honey festival and um, we're we're gonna have to cancel that uh with all the virus stuff, being able to have all of our classes. That that event is primarily based around education and being to teach people about bees and honey and where it comes from and how to do all that. So with everything going on, we're not able to get everybody in as tight of quarters as we'd have to to have that. Uh, We have had to cancel it for this year. So that's, that's unfortunate, Um, but hopefully we'll be able to have
0: everything back up and running in the spring. 1,500 people at your last honey festival. I guess that was the one you had uh, about this time last year. When is that normally conducted for you guys out there? Normally we do the first
2: Saturday in October. Um, So this is honey month. We kind of do it just as the weather starts to break and cool down. Um, And another reason why we do it then is varroa mites are a big problem with the bees. And uh, usually in September, October is when you need to be doing your mite treatments. Uh, so that's part of what we will do with the honey festival—is go through how to do those treatments and uh, what to do with them, and how to how to manage those. So that's kind of why we have it placed uh, the first
0: Saturday in October. Well, and I think that speaks uh, a lot to uh, how popular beekeeping has become. Uh, and just talk about how the how more and more people, even in urban environments, backyards. Are becoming beekeepers and producing their own honey.
2: Yes. Yeah, so you, you hear beekeepers, and everybody always thinks of big farms and lots of land, and uh, they're they're out there on rows and rows of crops. Uh, but you'll be amazed at how many beekeepers live in town, and uh, they, you may have a you may have several beekeepers in your neighborhood, and not even know it. Uh, bees will travel up to three miles addiction from the hive. Uh, so that's that's a lot of square mileage that one beehive could potentially cover. So you, you don't have to be out in the country to have bees and to get honey. Um, and in some instances, people in town actually get just as good of a crop as outside of town uh, because of irrigation. Uh in that watering the logs and planting flowers and uh, water and everything regularly uh when you get into an Arkansas summer it's normally hundred something degrees and everything's bone dry, uh, those places that are, are water or water are where the flowers are gonna be. So you don't have to be out in the country to, to do that. Uh, there are there are some instances where in town you'll you'll have better luck. So but and it helps with people's gardens too. Uh you're seeing more and more uh Home homeowners with small yards. I was driving through the Heights the other day, and they had a they had a garden in their front yard. Uh, so I mean, anywhere you are going to have a garden and all that, you need pollinators to pollinate
0: them. Of course, you do, and uh, a lot of people are learning that. And uh, what you try to teach people and educate people about is uh, there is a little bit of a input cost to get the proper equipment uh, to manage the bees and the hives, but at the same time, it's it's not that expensive if you're just gonna have a couple of hives and want bees for pollination if you're gonna to try to grow your own produce, isn't that right?
2: It is, yeah. We we tell people it's gonna cost about five hundred dollars to get your first hive going. Uh, the more hives you get, uh, the less uh it's gonna cost per hive. Um uh, most people say you're not supposed to have more than two hives on per city lot. Uh, in town, uh, most most towns don't have a, a limit more than uh, more than that. But um, it's five hundred dollars is a lot. But if you're a honey uh, eater, uh, I mean, it's eight dollars a pound is retail right now for our area. So if you go through, uh, I mean, even a pound a month, I mean that plus your extra produce that you can get and and all that kind of stuff. It'll be, uh, and that equipment's going to last for years, so it, it, it will pay for itself and uh, pay back more than what it'll cost you to get it. And you're getting local raw honey. Uh, it's going to have uh, raw honey from your area. It will have minutes and outs of pollen in it from your flowers. If you have a problem with allergies and things like that, then you're going to get, uh, you're going to help build your your body's immunity up to that pollen a little bit by eating that local raw honey. And it's better for you than uh, sugar for sugars and sweeteners, so you, you kind of get several bonuses for for your five hundred bucks that uh, will go well over that cost. Yes, and I was going to
0: have you comment, and you went ahead and did that uh, uh, about the nutritional value of uh, locally produced honey, and uh, and how it can help people with uh, allergies and their immune systems. There's just something about you know having it produced locally, and if you don't produce your own, you can purchase it locally. So, you know, yeah. let's talk about the popularity. How many right here, for instance, in central Arkansas, people you're meeting and educating who are, are doing what you're doing out there at the Bemis bee farm
2: Yeah. Um, our B-Day event is our spring event. Uh, we usually have close to a 1,000 people uh, for that, and that's mostly brand-new beekeepers that are getting started. Uh, some of them are repeat people coming back and is coming out for the day. Uh, That just gives you an idea how many new people there are getting started with with bees in your area. Uh, But there's there's a lot of people out there that have bees that that are selling that local honey. Uh, I mean, even 10 years ago, uh, people didn't really understand what raw honey was. So they just saw uh, honey in the store so they would buy it. But, But legally, if it says honey on it, If it does not say pure or raw, then it does not have to be uh, honey. It could be, it could have corn syrup or something in it or a sweetener in it. Um, So if it says pure honey, uh, then it can be, it has to be pure honey. So that'll be honey directly from the hives. Uh, But they used to flash heat honey. And what that did was it killed the crystallizing enzymes that are in the honey. So if honey sits on a shelf for a long time, True raw honey is going to crystallize and it'll turn into a solid rock, uh, sort of thing. Uh So all you do with that honey is you just heat it up to 95 degrees and it'll reliquify and it just goes up back to uh, being your normal honey. Uh, but for a long time, they would flash heat it so it had a longer shelf life in the store. So it's not shelf life as in it's going to go bad, but as in it's going to keep that nice liquid uh, form and look nice and pretty. So a lot of people think when honey get, turns into that rock that it's gone bad and you have to throw it out. Um, that's just natural way of honey. Uh, it just gets, when it gets a little bit of age to it, it'll crystallize. Um, so pure honey is honey that has not, its form hasn't been changed, so it's still pure, but it's been heated, and so it's no longer raw raw honey is honey straight from the hive that it, it can go through some minor filters and not do anything too big and it has not been heated and it goes straight into the bottle. So that that's what you're getting from those local beekeepers and from your own bees is that that raw honey. Um, so that's that's not gonna have when you when you flash heat the honey you actually damage some of the bacteria and enzymes that are in the honey and that's part of what you're looking for when you're getting that local honey or, or those enzymes. So um, that, that's what you got to watch for. So, uh, like I said, people are realizing what those differences are now more than ever, so they're, they're looking for honey that says raw honey on it. Uh, they're not just going to buy whatever they can find on the shelf. Uh, so to get the good stuff, you usually have to go to the, your local beekeeper. And they can
0: do that by locating where you are south of Little Rock at the uh, bee store you have right there uh, at your home there uh there. So, just one final question, I guess. With since you're not able to have your honey festival this this October, have you guys even considered, or how are you reaching out to people who who might reach out to you? Are you doing any uh, Zoom meetings or any uh, online education uh, during this pandemic?
2: We we have started a um, online class. Uh, you can go to our website and sign up for it through there. Uh, we've got a beginner class up. Uh, we are working on kind of a membership course. You can sign up, and we'll add uh, videos as we as we get them done. Uh, so you can just kind of get an ongoing source of information. We were kind of starting that already uh, before the pandemic uh, because we were hoping to start videoing some of our courses that we had uh, at the Honey Festival and b Day, and kind of have that up there. So if you came and uh, came to the event and you couldn't remember what it was, we'd kind of have some of that there. Um, but things have been so crazy this year. We have gotten them up online. We haven't gotten as much content up as we had hoped we would have by now. Uh, but we do have some beginner classes up there. Uh, because we'll typically have at least one beginner class a month. Um, and we, we've we had to pretty much cancel all of our classes for this year. So it's really forced a lot of people online. Um, so we we did that just trying to help get a few people uh, educated is it? I mean, part of being a beekeeper, the most important thing is education. Uh, like, like a lot of people here, pesticides are killing our bees, and, and they don't even know what a mite is. And uh, mites are causing way more problems than pesticides are for our bees. Um, so, part part of being a good beekeeper is, is going to be knowing uh, knowing what you're what you're dealing with and, and how to deal with them. Um, and again, that's kind of where where those events came from is trying to actually show people what this is and how to deal with it and how to take care of it and how to get your bees through, uh,
0: through all these issues that we're running into with them. Certainly, and I appreciate your expertise in that because we've reported in in the past about just how baromites are such a predator for honeybees and uh, how you need to protect your colonies, your hives, from them, and you can certainly do that well. Jeremy, I regret that uh, you're not going to be able to have the October Honey Festival this year as you normally would. I mean, it's a it's become, it's grown, I know, from having been there in the past, uh, just a couple of hundred to, like you said last year, 1,500 people now. They're making it a destination. They're saving that date. And hopefully we'll get this uh, pandemic behind us in 2021, and you can have your B-Day and Honey Festivals again next year. I know you'll have a lot of people Eager to visit the Bemis Bee Farm again next year. We'd love to have them. No question. So tell me uh, what that uh, web address is and how people
2: can learn more about what you're doing there. Uh, you can go to our website. It's just Bemis. It's a B as in boy. E M I S Honey Farm dot com. Uh, and we actually do have a website for the Honey Festival, uh, which Day will be posted on that same. Uh, and it's just A R Honey uh, Festival dot org. Um, You can go there and get get the updates uh, as we have them for when
0: we're going to be able to have an event again. All right. And, uh, of course, if you need any equipment or want to just get some fresh locally produced honey from the Bemis Bee Farm, you can visit them and uh, you'll have all that information, the address and everything there on their website. Uh, They have a a one-stop shop for beekeeping there on their farm down there south of Little Rock. Well, Jeremy... Thanks for visiting with us, explaining all of this for us, the importance of honey during National Honey Month. Uh, I know uh, we keep it in our home all the time, and uh, we appreciate what you're doing to educate more and more people. It's it's growing uh, quickly, I think, uh, for people, as you've already said, uh, homeowners and uh, for pollination if you have a, a garden and you need some bees for pollination purposes. So thanks again for your time today, Jeremy. No problem. Thank you. Been talking to Jeremy Bemis of Bemis Honeybee Farm on this edition of Arkansas AgCast.
1: Next, Keith Sutton catches up with Bill Robertson, Cotton Extension Agronomist with the University of Arkansas Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service. He spoke with us during planting season. Now he's back to discuss how the crop has turned out.
3: Welcome. I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. And today uh, my guest is Bill Robertson. Bill is the Cotton Agronomist at the U of A Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service. Bill's a frequent guest, and we're glad to have you back again today, Mr. Bill.
4: I'm, I'm happy to be here with you today, Keith.
3: We uh, we want to talk again about current events in the cotton world, and uh, we got some important stuff to talk about. Some things have changed uh, over the past few weeks with all the weather and uh, I'll just let you jump in there and tell us what's going on this time.
4: All right, Keith. You know, s- you know, we visited last time and talked about nothing. Has been easy this year. Anyway, that seemed like 2020, the year that's that we're never going to forget, is continues continues its uh, its tradition. I guess you want to say, but uh, you know, in August, NAS re- released their yield estimate for Arkansas. And they had us 10 pounds better than last year. Last year, we set an all-time record high of 1,185 pounds of lint per acre. And they they bumped us up another 10 pounds to 1,195 pounds. And and I was in total agreement with that. We've had really good fruit retention. It's held the plant down. Uh, we had really good good and uniform boload on the plant. The plants were looking... You know, at the end of a long, hard race, you need to be tired, and the plants look tired. And so the cotton crop was winding down the way it needs to and all that, and then guess what happens? Laura comes in.
3: Laura? You know, here at my
4: house, I'm in, yeah, I'm in the hills in Jackson County. I got four inches of rain up here with the hurricane. And, you know, it leaned some cotton over and all that, that but the the part that hurt the worst was the other four inches of rain that come over about the next 14 days, because we're starting to get some bow rod and things like that in. You know, if I look at the years that I've been in Arkansas, that we've made record yields, just nearly every time on those years that we've made record yields, if the cotton plant made a bowl, we got it in the basket or the module. This year, there's we've, with the bowl rot that's kicking in and other things that are going on, there's going to be bowls on the plant that are never going to make it in the harvester. They're rotten, they're hard locking and all that. And so I still think we got a good crop but we don't have the great crop that we, that we had just just a while back. And I think the biggest part of that is that long stream of wet weather that came after Laura. Uh, it, but there anyway.
3: Was, there was more than just Laura. It, it, it just kept on raining even after. It kept staying Laura
4: wet. Yes. And so right now what's going on, we're getting a lot of people started defoliating cotton. I know uh, some people have started defoliating cotton this last weekend. Uh, got a lot of people that are defoliating cotton right now. You know, saw earlier planted cotton. Um, you know, I had I, I saw blooms uh, the first of July, and we had a good effective uh, bowl period, and uh, we've got really good yield potential. Anyway, It's time to start defoliating cotton because if you look right now, most of them are right. You know, we're we're basically a two shot program for harvest dates. They're doing their leaf drop right now. And generally, five to seven days later, we'll come in with our bowl opener. And usually about 12 to 14 days for our bowl openers to work, and we're putting a picker in the field. So we're about three weeks away from getting pickers rolling in the field. And I'm really anxious to see what's going on. Our bowls, we had good bowl size. The thing that's encouraging to me is when I count seed, I'm having really good seed numbers. Because in years, been years that we had a tremendous number of bowls per acre, but our yield wasn't there, and you start and you look at seeds. We may only have 25 seed in a bowl. I'm seeing a lot of mid 30s, even some 40s uh-huh. uh, numbers of seed in a bowl. So the plant makes the seed, and then the lint grows from the seed. So if we got a good seed, good good seed set, a good number of seed in the bowl, we're going to have a good crop. And so I'm really anxious to see the pickers in the field, and and um, and I think we're going to have good quality cotton. Uh, I don't think this, this weather, this rain is going to impact our color to that, uh, to that great degree because a lot of it wasn't open when we got this rain. Now it's going to open, so we're going to have, pretty, we're going to have nice bright cotton. And I think our leaves are going to go ahead and fall off, and, and I think we're going to have good weight. Because usually good cotton picks good. If you have light cotton, it's the quality is not too good. <laughs> it usually do not pick very good. And so I'm expecting it to pick pretty good. And, uh, and I actually see kind of how things start rolling when we get it to the gym.
3: So for people who don't know, Bill, how many acres of cotton are planted in Arkansas this year? What's our estimate on that? Well, we,
4: we ended up right at half a million acres and, and our boll weevil eradication uh, program, they know where every cotton field in Arkansas is. And we're just a few, a few acres short of half a million and the USDA NASS, did their estimate and, and they're right on track with half a million acres. So we're, I think NASS and bull eradication are about as close as they've ever been on acres. So half a million acres is where we're at. And I think that's what we're going to get a picker in.
3: So it's been kind of a, a good news, bad news situation since we talked last time, but uh, maybe, maybe looking okay, right?
4: Yeah. You know, when we look at crop wise and all that, I still think we're pretty good it, it sure would be better if we had a decent price. <laughs> yes. But uh, but but we've got good. I think we're going to have pretty, still have pretty decent yields. So we're going to think we're still going to have decent cotton. There's there's a lot of, of poor quality, cheap cotton for sale out there. Right. But people are going to need some good quality cotton. There's a market for good quality cotton, and I think we're going to have good quality cotton still.
3: Well, Bill, we always appreciate you taking time to visit with us. Uh, We'll get another update maybe next time. Those guys will be out in the field doing some harvesting, and we can get some real on-the-ground information from that. Thank you for being here with us today.
1: Sounds like a deal. Thank you, man. Thank you. Finally, Greg Patterson talks to Ruth Pepler, president of the Arkansas Agritourism Association. She and her family run Dogwood Hills Guest Farm in Harriet. She talks about the changes in hosting guests on the farm during this age of COVID-19. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau. And on this edition of Arkansas
5: AgCast, our guest is Ruth Pepler. Ruth and her family run the Dogwood Hills Guest Farm outside of Harriet. And she also is the president of the Arkansas Agri-Tourism Association. And Ruth, the fall season is upon us, and that's when agri-tourism really kicks off. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast.
6: Thank you for having me.
5: So tell us about your, your guest farm. What kind of operation do you run?
6: Well, we have a homestead farm that we have opened up to visitors. We take one family on the farm at a time, and they are walked through the daily chores, um, milking cows, hydroponic barley fodder, collecting eggs, feeding cows. Uh, we also have dairy goats. Um, the guests can go and hike in the woods with the dairy goats, so they enjoy doing that. But really, we don't have a individual crop per se, what we do is try and bring in our guests and let them get a hands-on experience and leave as an educated consumer.
5: Well, obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic that has hit and has been with us for six months, mm. you've had to adjust. And, and tell us what what you did to help protect people within um, uh, their visits to your farm.
6: You bet. Um, We are, we have, let's see, most everything that we do is outside in the open. Um, So what we have is most outside activities. When guests are traveling through with us into the fodder house, it's a little tight, so we ask them to wear masks. We all wear masks. We have hand sanitizer immediately outside of this building. Um, Then most of the other activities are open in the air um, outside as when we get into the barn in the morning and we're going to do the milking that's another close situation so of course we're asking everybody to wear masks at that point um, we have also set up different stations around the farm where we have hand sanitizer. And then we also have um, running hot running water sinks and bathrooms right next to our barn, so it's very easy access. And that was a big plus to have those in place already. Um, it kind of gave us a leg up on, on being prepared to make those pivots that we had to do. The other big thing is people like to come upstairs after chores and have breakfast with us, and one of the adjustments we have had to make with that is we serve them breakfast, we stay masked, we don't have people come and sit at our counter at the kitchen where they can kind of watch everything happening, but there is a big opening between where people are eating and where we are doing the cooking, so they can still stand at the doorway, talk, watch, but not come into our production kitchen we also typically would sit and eat breakfast all together as a group, and what we're doing is we're serving our guests first, and then after that, we bring in our staff and serve them as well. So
5: you've had to make some adjustments, and you know you are the president of the Arkansas Agri-Tourism Association, and, and what have you been hearing from your, your members in regards to dealing with these issues, and, and what proactive measures has the association taken to help its members during this difficult time?
6: Yeah, you bet. Um, One of the first concerns was the UPIC season coming up um, in the summer when this first hit. So I was getting calls about what do we do about UPIC. And there was a good shift. I think most of our UPIC operations initially, especially strawberry season, went to a where they would pick for them, and it was just a, a pickup, car pickup. They had limits. They had lines. I think they did very well with their strawberries this year, which I was very glad to see. And that kind of then went into blueberry season, and people were able to spread out, send families out in groups. Um, one of the things we recommended right away was separate your groups out, have um, different reservation times instead of every just kind of open hours where people would all try and come first thing in the morning, and then you had a large crowd there, which was right. kind of counterproductive. So we tried helping people to just spread them out, you know, put call times down, have people call the farm, don't just show up, call and see what their protocols are, ask ahead, be prepared. So when, they, when the, the guest got there, they already knew what to expect, and I think that made it easier for the operators um, I started getting calls about fall activities. What do we do about hay mazes and, you know, pumpkin patches and things like that? And while, you know, we wish we could see the future way back in the summer and see what was going to (laughs) happen, you know, for the fall season and how COVID was going to be progressing or whatnot. Um, we Then we got together uh, the Agri Tourism Association at the University and the Department of Health for our, Arkansas. And we put our heads together and we came up with a resource guide. And thanks to a ton of help from the university, they put together this beautiful, easy-to-read guide um, with some recommendations um, as far as what would be helpful to the operators, how to keep the flow of traffic going. Um, things that would be not advisable, like, say, a bounce house where you really could not maintain a six-foot social distancing um, area, Um, uh, the corn bins, things like that where kids are just going to kind of gravitate towards each other, but other things like the hay mazes and pumpkin patches and hay rides even, you know, maybe more hay rides more frequent trips with less people on them, you know, clustering the families together, that's fine. You know, they're all traveling together anyhow. Um, What was going to be required, you know, masks for closer situations once they were out in the open, Um, being able to take their mask off but make sure they had them handy in case they got close to people again. You know, just different things that we were going to be able to say this is going to make the flow easier. Um, Not a regulation but just a recommendation and a resource really for how to – keep things a little more um, flowable (laughs) on the farm. Um, You know, hay mazes. Hay mazes can be kind of tricky because people start going one way and then they try and backtrack and
2: can't quite remember.
6: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we recommended that they put extra staff members along so that at junctures where people might get confused to keep the flow going a single direction. Um, that was one of the things that just made that a doable event, you know, and that's a a big investment for farms to put out a hay maze. That's a huge project.
5: You know, uh, you you make mention of of having people stationed in different areas to help mm -hmm. keep the traffic flow going and keep people away from each other. And one of these Mm -hmm. questions that just made, made this question pop up into my mind is, are you hearing from your members in regards to whether they're you know, having some trouble getting enough staff to deal with this type of stuff?
6: Um, that Staffing is always an issue, um, especially in rural communities, but depending on what their individual school districts have decided to do, whether they have the, uh, the kids coming on the weekends, a lot of the schools are not doing these huge field trips. So that changes things up right there. With that oh. and then so there's so in certain areas, there's more availability of kids to be able to help, and then in other areas it's the same thing it's a little harder
5: and so, it's yeah. interesting that you bring up the uh, trips from the schools to you know the pumpkin patch type things that really really gets underway, I would assume later this month mm-hmm. and with school just getting underway, I think we're a week this is a the second week of school um are is there some hesitation in regards to the the schools coming out or whether they will actually come out what what's the the uh, information you're getting from your pumpkin patch people
6: Yeah, that's kind of an unknown at the moment. Um <laughs> I think they're trying to see how that school year starts out um, what they are finding, though, is they're getting a lot more families coming out, and the families that have chosen virtual are looking for things to do with their kids since they're home. So it's kind of shifting from the tons and tons of bus groups that were scheduled to a lot of individual families coming out, and they're welcoming that.
5: So so you've been able to make a transition yourself in your scheduling that you may not get as many families Uh, coming in as you're normally used to but you're quite confident in the safety that's being provided and the way things are going in the transition from one family to the next is your is your schedule um i mean are you booked out, (laughs) out in advance or how's it going for you are people showing up in the way they used to or is it you know what's what's happening there
6: Uh, Actually, we've been a lot busier, and I think it has to do with the fact that we do only take one family on the farm at a time, um, that exclusive experience, but it's also, you know, we've, we've got people feeling very safe to be here, there's no other people here when they're here, it's just us, and we're doing all of our social distancing and staying out of crowds and all of these other things ourselves just to maintain a good environment for our guests. So it's it's been a big transition, but I felt like we were really prepared for it, though, the way we had everything set up. It was a smooth transition.
5: Now, now obviously, you all have to deal with uh, health department and things like that anyway, if you have, you know, some sort of food service or whatever going on that you normally have. But would you recommend to uh, agritourism operations to, if they haven't already done so, to, you know, develop a working relationship with the health department?
6: Oh, absolutely. Um, we've, We've started pretty right off the bat. I mean, when we had our barn being built, I asked the health inspector just to come and see if it was an okay idea to put a certified kitchen above our barn. And that's what we did, and we followed – all of the guidelines that he set up and recommendations and as we were building, it was really good. So we've over the years built a very good rapport with our local health department, and I'm very glad about that. I can call him for questions, um, you know, ideas. Hey, I was thinking about doing this. What do you think? And he'll say, yeah, or are <laughs> which is great. I mean, it's very helpful then to charge a – I'm not an ask forgiveness. I'm an ask permission kind of person, <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's worked out very well for us well especially
5: since you know your your livelihood depends on it um mm-hmm. i would guess that you've uh handed out the recommendation to your agri tourism members through either webinars that you all do or or uh, um, things like that to have the health department on speed dial
6: <laughs> i think it's i think it's a great idea especially right now and i think when it first happened You know, when COVID first hit, the health department was probably completely overwhelmed. I think they've got a lot of um, very helpful resources, though, right now. We've been sharing a lot of the local regional food safety um, pages with our Facebook page and our website, just trying to keep up with what was the recommendations were from the CDC, the Department of Health, and the university. And the university did a fabulous job of keeping up on all those things. So it was very easy to just continue sharing that instead of, you know, why reinvent the wheel when it's right there for you.
5: You know, um, another question that just popped into my head was uh, the agritourism places that I've visited over the years. Some of them actually have, you know, a
6: store
5: mm-hmm. uh, located, you know, where they have a gift shop of some sort. Have you heard from your membership uh, about any any problems there, or how how have folks been addressing that that you know of?
6: Um, some of them closed their stores temporarily uh, while they, you know, especially depending on the market that they had, how it was set up. Um, One of the markets, McGee and Me Market, has done a fabulous job with signage and their flow of traffic, and they're requiring masks, and they've held very firm to their convictions, which I applaud. It's very hard when people do not have a set standard and stick to it. You know, then there's always doubt. If you have a very set standard, then you give confidence to your customers. Right. So, you know. Say we, we have a small store on the farm, so what we did is we only let in one family at a time, and we had good air circulation, and we would also um, just go ahead and use that blue UVC light afterwards and sanitize it again. I like sure. that because it gets all of the products clean which, you know, was making me feel better, and we also made sure they wore masks inside and that they had hand sanitizer available, and we used gloves and safe pickup. We have rails on our porch, so one rail was for dropping off milk jars. The other rail was for picking them up. So... um we were able to just set them out, step back, and have the customer come up and pick up their product. So I think there was a lot of creativity happening. Um, Drive through different. Um, the winery out in um, Chateau Ozark was out in um, Northwest Arkansas, and they've they've come up with some really creative ideas. So just just seeing how people are handling it has been fabulous. But really, there hasn't been any one set you know, standard across the board for them, they all had to figure out what worked for their individual farm store.
5: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there anything that I've missed here that that you would want to touch base and let the public know about as we, you know, roll into this fall agritourism season?
6: I would just say that fall is a perfect time to get outside and enjoy, enjoy the agritourism activities. Um, get your family out, and just get some normal in your life, that would be a great thing to do. (laughs) It's been hard to find normal things to do. But, you know, the agritourism events are some of those things that you can do that kind of bring back the family. The um, holidays are coming up, and I think the fall agritourism season really kicks that off. So, you know, just get out and get some really good family time, out with your friends where you can do a socially distanced activity and um, really just enjoy the outdoors.
5: Well, Ruth, how about the uh, Dogwood Hills Guest Farm? Do you all have a a Facebook page or a a website that you can uh, give to our listeners? Because if they want to start the fall season off, sounds like with you, they better book now.
6: (laughs) Yeah, we really, um, we're really going into October, November, and December right now. So, yeah, our website is thefarmx.com. It's thefarmex.com. And also the agritourism um, website is aragritourism.com. So you've got both of them, and then Dogwood Hills um, Guest Farm on Facebook, and Arkansas Agritourism Association on Facebook.
5: And then also, you mentioned, um, the university putting together kind of some standards for the, um, your membership to follow, but it would probably be good too, um, I mean, I read through them for the public to touch base and see those as well. And, Absolutely. and where can they, where can they read, um, the information on that?
6: Um, both of those are on our Facebook pages. The, our Dogwood Hills Guest Farm Facebook page, and the Arkansas Agri-Tourism Facebook page. It is also on the university's local and regional uh, food safety page.
5: Outstanding. She is Ruth Pepler. Uh, She and her family run Dogwood Hills Guest Farm, uh, Harriet, Arkansas, and she's also the president of the Arkansas Agri-Tourism Association,
1: Ruth, thank you so much for taking time to be on Arkansas AgCast today.
6: You bet. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That wraps up another Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with more interviews and news about Arkansas agriculture.